Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Ricardo Aziz, Director for the Center for Higher Education Mergers and Acquisitions, as well as the Executive Director for the Foundation for Research and Education Excellence, to discuss the future of higher education in North America. Can higher education make the necessary changes to be relevant for future generations of students? Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of the Association for Biblical Higher Education. And we are honored to have uh, as our guest this week, Ricardo Aziz. Ricardo has a distinguished career in higher education. He's a medical doctor, having more recently been involved in higher education administration. He's a principal at SPH Consulting Group and the director for the Center for Higher Education Mergers and Acquisitions, as well as the executive director for the Foundation for Research and education excellence. I would love to see your business card, Ricardo. That must be quite the eight and a half by 11 sheet that you have, but welcome and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure. Great. So our audience can get to know you a little bit. Our opening question before we actually get into the content, which I'm really excited about talking about mergers and acquisitions and kind of the current state of where uh, higher education is in general. Talk to us a little bit about one defining moment in your life that God used to kind of propel you forward in either your personal or your professional life. You know, uh, I think the defining moment, of course, there's been many. So I should say that I'm very fortunate because, you know, I've been guided often by sometimes crises. But I will say that one of the defining moments for, for me was as a child, actually, we came, we'd gone back to Uruguay. My parents were both university professors and Uruguay is where I was born. That's a small country in South America. My father probably didn't read the newspapers and forgot that they were in the middle of a major urban guerrilla uh, attack. And so they were obviously issues between the military and the urban guerrilla. And we basically had to run out in the cover of darkness, actually about three months before the coup d'etat. We came to Puerto Rico, where my father had obtained a teaching assignment, but we literally had, as they say, the shirts on our back. We had no assets. Everything had been frozen, taken away. Our house in Uruguay had been taken away. So I learned basically there in that moment in time that no matter how bad things are, you can do it on your own. And so when I talk to institutions and I talk to presidents and so on and so forth, there are often these hopeless kind of looks, so I'm not sure we can ever deal with this or change it or address it. And I know in my spirit that that's not right. And so that's one of those lessons that I've never forgotten. And it was really defining about who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Everything has a context, right? I will often use the phrase, you never worry best case scenarios, right? There's always a worst case that's out there. And uh, the subject matter of what we're talking about, I, I agree with you. A lot of times the perspective is it can't get worse than what we currently have right now. But in reality, it, it, it sure can. 
and the industry of higher education is in turmoil today. You have been around it for, for a number of years. So in, in the most general sense, I know you've done quite a bit of research. What's the research telling us about the future of higher education in North America? So our center does and a lot of research, and I personally do as well. Our research really uh, tells us that you know, among things uh, that are critical for higher education leaders and policymakers to understand, and this may not always sound as uh, as warm as we'd like it to be, is that we have significant excess capacity. We can teach a lot more higher education students than we actually have. Uh, and it's something that we're not facing as a industry. We're not facing as a higher education sector. We probably have somewhere between three and five million excess undergraduate slots in this country. And that's what our research is trying to refine. But of course, a lot of it depends on how you define it, how you figure it out. There's certainly just, is- uh, just I'll pause you right there. Just curious about that. The three to five million open seats. Is that kind of across all sectors of, of higher education equivalent or is there a sector that's getting hit harder than others? So. That's a great question. We're speaking primarily about undergraduate slots, for starters. There seems to be a greater demand for graduate slots. So graduate education doesn't seem to be under the level of excess capacity that undergraduate is. Now, that's what our research is trying to tease out, right? When we say there is somewhere between three and five million excess undergraduate slots, this is based a lot on our estimations of where we were before in the last decade, right? Uh, Before the decline in enrollment has begun, uh, what has happened since, uh, in addition to uh, adding uh, uh, more facilities, expanding our online offerings, uh, and hiring more faculty, all of that has continued to expand our teaching capacity. But you're right, not everything necessarily has expanded in the same rate, right? I mean, for example, there are certain uh, professions that seem to be still in a high demand. Health professions, for example, that's uh, one of the sectors that I'm involved with, seems to still be in great need. And for example, nursing uh, comes to mind. We seem to have a greater demand for nurses than there are actually teaching, right? The undergraduate slots, and that really relates primarily to the lack of faculty, and that's a whole different conversation that we can have. So not all sectors and not all fields have the same excess capacity, but as a whole, I think we need to understand that we have a lot more ability to teach than there are students. Right. So then extrapolate that out a little bit then. So as we look to the future of higher education, what are the implications of so many open seats. Is that going to continue? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to stay the same? Well, I think one of the things that is going to happen and is happening already is that the business model that we have is changing. Many schools, particularly small schools, of which really 75% or more uh, of the Title IV schools in the nation are small. I think it's important for all of us to understand that we're primarily a country of small schools. These schools really have been heavily tuition dependent, and that model is going to have to change over time because we can't simply count on tuition increases, right, because the student debt and family debt is getting to unbearable levels. And we can't certainly count on more students coming in because in the end, as a whole, we're going to have less students. 
So the business model needs to change. I think one of the things that we're going to be uh, seeing is we're going to become much more entrepreneurial. We're going to be partnering with industry much more. We're going to be creating a more tailored education, if you would. And then we're going to try to find ways to attract a large body of students that is no longer involved in higher education. For example, the 30 million or so of students that are estimated to have some college, but no degree. The problem with that sector of students, the 30 million or so, is we don't really fully comprehend why they didn't stay in higher education. It's very possible that they found it of not much value. It didn't really change much their life. And they went on, many of them went on to have very productive lives of their own without higher education, in which case it'll be a little harder to attract those people back to our institutions. But what I see in the future is consolidation, right? Schools are going to have to come together. We simply don't have enough students. We're going to have to be to merge. We're going to have to create very close strategic partnerships. We're going to have to create shared services. We're going to have less schools. That's uh, very clear. Schools are going to close. Others are going to merge. And we're going to see this change in emphasis, right? We're going to become more entrepreneurial. We're going to become less really bricks and mortar tuition driven that we were. Yeah. So a study, I usually don't like to mention it unless I can quote the actual study, but it was a, a recent one uh, about the public's confidence in higher education. Uh, I guess it was a, a study that's been done for a longitudinal study for over time. And uh, f- for, the, for the time of the study showed that the public's perception of higher education was a positive perception. But I think for the first time, that study indicated that the public had a negative perception of higher education. So not only are the numbers dropping, the public is also asking the value question about higher education. And, and higher education, for those of us who are passionate and advocates of it, because we, we do know the data is pretty that it does change people's lives for the better. But again, that is, we have to remember that that is as a whole, right? Individuals may uh, not find that. And I think what the public is beginning to ask is, okay, what am I getting for this very high tuition that I'm paying? Or even this moderate tuition that I'm paying? For, for most individuals, the amount of higher education is the value of a home or multiple homes. And, and so I think it's important that we keep that in mind. The other thing, of course, has been the much more recent dialogue in our country, almost the politicization of higher education, which is, to be fair, it it happens almost in any country where higher education is viewed as privilege and then it becomes highly politicized. And I think that's also contributing to this level of disaffection over time. So all of that is going to contribute even further to the decrease in student interest in our institutions. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. 
Now, back to the show. Yeah, one of the difficult things is, you know, going going to the value question and you hate you, you hate to diminish uh, a higher education experience to a value question. What do I get out of it? It's a consumer mentality, and that rubs uh, against the academy. Historically, the academy uh, ha- has resisted that idea of, of we are producing a product, a degree, a thing that you buy. A lot of perception has to change then within the academy if that's no longer the case, that, that if, if we are serving consumers have a mindset of, hey, if I'm going to invest this money they're asking the right question of what do I get out of it? I I totally agree. I think we, the Academy, needs to begin to understand our clients. And we need to understand that they are clients. You know, we almost resist talking about it. I remember at one point when I was university president, I was being criticized because I had an MBA. I had a business background. And so they thought that that was not appropriate for higher education. I'm thinking to myself, if you're managing a $1.2 billion enterprise, you better know business, right? But the point is, we've resisted talking about and understanding what our clients need, right? Which are our students. This is what we're here for. We're here to provide students an education and to provide them with a better life. But we do, you know, it's we're a little bit hypocritical about this. In one hand, we compete for these clients. We put up signs, we do celebrations, we put up new campuses, new climbing walls, new this and that. We try to make our institutions, you know, we do more marketing than probably Costco does and other other companies. So to say that we're not a business that is attracting clients is hypocritical on one side. And on the other side, though, we have to understand that families cannot continue to bear an increasing cost of tuition. It's becoming student debt is the second highest, uh, the second cause of personal bankruptcy in this country. And so that is something that we need to begin to, to face. The, 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 the issue, again, we are unfortunately a business and we have a client, which are the students, and we have to respect that. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and there's two parties at play. It's the institution who's providing the service or providing the experience. But you also, like you said, you have the client or the customer. Customer expectations are also increasing too, which is often a part of the story that's not told of the increased cost of higher education. What do the students expect when they get to campus? And when you went to college, it was assumed that I had a roommate and usually the, the room was small and we just made it work. But now expectations are of, hey, I want to live in my own room. What do you mean I have to have a single bed? I'm used to sleeping in a queen size bed. And by the way, what are the racquetball courts like here? Or what are the swimming facilities like? Or what are my food options? Do I, do I have multiple food options? So the expectation for the experience is also increasing. So it's like the, this uh, flywheel that just keeps growing bigger and bigger and bigger because competition then increases. So when junior comes to campus for the visit, they want to be wowed. Well, how do you wow them by the services that we provide and meeting their expectations? But that's going to break. You're absolutely correct. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, but, but, but we have to face the fact that most of that expectation has been driven by the industry, by us, right? By, by, by institutions of higher education. You know, a school over there offers a climbing wall and a school over there offers, you know, free uh, gym membership and over there it's free food and it's better food and it's got sushi on it and so on and so forth. And so we are, as I said earlier, competing 
for students. But we have to understand that in the end, there are less students, and we haven't even faced the enrollment cliff that is coming in the next couple of years, which is actually going to even further diminish our uh, group of, if you would, uh, new students. You know, new data that just came out the other day celebrated the fact that enrollment had climbed. But when you actually looked at the data, new to first-time freshmen had actually continued to drop. So I think it was very misleading. Our headlines, you know, most of the growth had actually occurred in by community colleges, and most of that growth actually by dual enrollment, right? High school students are taking classes. <laughs> so that's not exactly the kind of trend we wanted to see. So we have to face the fact that there will be less students in the future. So what are we going to do? Well, institutions are going to cannibalize students from other institutions by offering more and more bennies and goodies, and hence jacking up the cost of that education, creating expectations that they perhaps can't meet. I think we're a little bit in trouble, and in, in we have to face that. We as, an, as academia and as uh, higher education executives need to face the fact that the future is going to be different. So we've talked about it at the high level of, of higher education as an industry. Bring it down a little bit closer now to the institution. And you've been on a, a number of college campuses. You've assisted them with some of the conversations around mergers or closures. What are some early indicators for our listeners who are uh, mostly presidents? What are some of the early indicators for a college or university that may signal potential problems ahead? So we did a study and published a study a long time ago, actually working with EY Parthenon, not a long time ago, in 2017, in one of our work with TI Institute, about sort of the markers, the various markers of what we saw as closures. And it was very clear that size mattered. And this is one of the things that I keep emphasizing. And many of our faith-based institutions across the country are small. And, and, and as I said before, even the entire sector 75% of all Title IV schools are small, right? Less than 5,000 students. So size matters. Schools less than 1,000 certainly do merit attention. Uh, they are extraordinarily fragile. They have suffered as a sector, as a group, about a 35% decrease in enrollment in the last decade. Certainly financial markers, things like in endowment to annual budget. I mean, is your endowment less than three times your annual budget? That's a problem. Are you heavily tuition dependent? That's a problem. Uh, is, is your debt ratio relatively high? And we have some figures in our data. These are markers really that indicate that perhaps at this point, you need to start thinking about, okay, what's the future going to look like? Um, one of the things that I think we often don't see, and I recommend uh, boards to do this, I, I work with executive boards uh, and governing boards to try to understand what the future looks like. And part of what we do is we say to them, take a look at the long-term trend. Don't look at the last year or two or three. Look at 10-year trends, particularly in this post-COVID environment. COVID sort of turned everything upside down. There was new money, this and that. So we have to see 10-year trends. When you start looking at 10-year trends, that's when governing boards say, whoa, I didn't realize we're half of the enrollment we were a decade ago, or I didn't realize we had dropped 40%, or I didn't realize that our costs had gone up 50%, and so on and so forth. So I think it's important that as we look at the future, we also look to the past, but look to the past in a long way, not just 
in a just a year or two. Yeah, and that's such a good point. And I would, and I'm curious your thoughts on this too, of looking even at the programmatic trends. We are very good in in higher education to add programs. We are not so good of taking academic programs away. So you know, you see some instances of a longstanding department that has maybe only four or five full time faculty, but their enrollment, their student enrollment, certainly can't sustain uh, that, and so they're upside down within that. So it's an analysis of, yeah, what's your 10-year track, but also down specifically to the programs and student enrollment in those programs. Would you recommend looking at that as well? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think those of us who have lived in academia, and I should tell you that, that I actually never went away to college. I lived on faculty housing, on campus, in my parents' home, who were teaching on the university. So I've actually literally lived at universities since I was a young uh, person, even going to college. Uh, So we have to remember that university higher education provides a lot more than just a way to get a job, right? It provides civic knowledge. It provides a level of higher education and ability to think and these kind of things. And so we know this and embrace this. But again, that doesn't really convince the consumer, right? The client, the government, the people who pay the tuition, the taxpayer. Uh, Unfortunately, that alone doesn't do that. Tying to my comments about the value of education, we really believe in the diversity and the holistic approach to higher education. The problem is, you're right, we cannot sustain all classes, and we cannot sustain all fields, and we cannot sustain all faculty, because really there is at some level a revenue to expense consideration. Now, to be fair, even as university president, we had to balance that. Not all our programs were break-even. Not all our programs made money. You know, there were programs that we felt had enough value to sustain. But you can only do that for a minority of your classes. If the vast majority of your offerings are underwater, then, you know, it doesn't take a business degree to know you're going to be underwater as an institution. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so true. And that's a good takeaway is take a hard look and yeah, great Add academic programs. But also if you're adding academic programs, make sure that you're also taking some away that are just no longer viable or, and at least have the conversation of, we know we're underwater with this program, but because we are doing better in this program, we can sustain that program that is core to our institution or our university. But it's an informed decision as opposed to just kind of keeping programs that we always have. So you you work with mergers and, and acquisitions. I've been around higher education for a long time. You've been around higher education. I think for all of my career, there's been talk of um, mergers and acquisitions. So it's something that we talk about a lot, but less frequently acted on. Why is that? You know, um, my beginning experience with mergers, and by the way, we don't really talk about acquisitions, even though we talk about it in our studies. The reality is an acquisition is a merger from a different point of view, right? So I think it's some of us would say I've been acquired, while others would say we've been merged, right? So, but my experience with mergers started, in fact, when I was initially hired by uh, Governor Sonny Perdue to actually come in and merge various clinical entities in uh, in Georgia to create what was then the public academic health system for the state of Georgia. We actually did not have that. So my job was to bring all these different warring factions together to create a unified entity. 
And then subsequent to that, as I always say, no good deed goes unpunished. We were then asked to merge the university with another institution to create a larger, you know, research one institution. And so I learned mergers by doing it, if you would. But one of the things that I think struck me then was that very few people actually understood what mergers were and how to do them and how to think about them and so on and so forth. And it was truly, you know, the uninformed leading the uninformed uh, back then. And that's one of the great things that actually moved me to spend and dedicate my career now to developing a better understanding of what mergers are, what the possibilities are, how to get about them, how not to do them, the pitfalls and the bear traps that exist along the way, as well as the opportunities for students and, and institutions. So I've spent that time doing that, but there still is a great fear of mergers. And it's fascinating to me and rather tragic, really, that there's many more closures than mergers. And I can say for a fact, and we have good data now to demonstrate this, that closures do not benefit anybody, nobody. The alumni lose their place. The students who were there lose their institution. And if the closure happens to happen abruptly, uh, which actually occurs too often, those students are lost. Many of them just never come back to higher education at all. Uh, faculty don't benefit and so on and so forth, right? The local communities, which are dependent on these institutions. So we're trying to find tactics early on that may uh, salvage to some degree the mission, the heritage, the tradition, even the location perhaps of that school is something that governing boards should do much more often. And yet what we see time and time again is they wait till the absolute last minute. They wait till they have no resources, no funding. They can't even make budget perhaps by the end of the semester. They have no brand name, almost no enrollment. And now they look for enrollment, I mean, for a merger, partner. And we have to understand that becomes basically almost not doable, right? Because merging with an institution that doesn't bring any assets to the table is not the wise thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing, you, because you've been working with us now for a number of years, are you seeing the landscape change, that mentality change at all? Are you seeing colleges having conversations earlier on before it is too late? and the closure is inevitable? So I fortunately run a consulting business here and I help clients. And, and all I can say is we've been really receiving a lot more inquiries and a lot more questions about this matter. So there is an increased awareness. We sense it. You know, I, I remember when I used to give talks on mergers uh, a few years ago, people would actually register for the course next door and literally just walk into our session because they didn't want to be seen as registering for a course on mergers. You know, it was almost like, you know, I don't want to be seen kind of thing. Today, I don't think we're seeing that. I think the conversations are broader. People are thinking about it. When you actually survey presidents of institutions, a third to even 40% of them are thinking of a merger, at least uh, considering it. The problem is, there is also a level of inaction in higher education. You know, we have to remember we're a thousand years old, right? We are full of tradition. We wear garbs that at graduation that are a thousand years old, right? And, and called to that. We don't like change. We study change. We talk about change. We don't like to do change. And so I think there is a lot more consideration, but still a fairly high level of inaction around these issues. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we're getting close to the end of the time for our podcast. Maybe maybe just one final question here, Ricardo, and I really do appreciate your time with us on this podcast. If there's a president listening into this or a board chair listening into this, and they just kind of have that sense of, yeah, you know what, we need to have a initiate a conversation either to be merged or to merge or take the lead or to follow in an acquisition scenario. What's the first step? What would you recommend if they have that thought? What's the their action step to move in that direction? I, I think the first thing that governing boards and chief executives have to think about is that they should consider a merger as part of their strategic plan. That doesn't mean they have to do one. That doesn't mean that they have to pursue one. But they really shouldn't treat mergers as the, as the words you cannot mention, right? As the thing you can't speak about. Really, it should be part of many institutions' strategic plans. Is this something we should look at that? Is there a partner we should consider? Do we want to do this earlier and so on? So my advice to governing boards and the chief executives is start the conversation even one-on-one. Begin to think about it. If you don't do it, great. If you think it's not for you, that's fine. But at least you've thought about it and you've considered it and you've looked at the positives and negatives. Yeah. And created the inner internal mechanisms to even have that conversation. That there's tremendous wisdom. And that was an amazing stat that you gave to 30 to 40% of college presidents were having conversations around mergers and acquisitions. It's probably not a question of if, but when one of our presidents is going to have that conversation. So to kind of lay the groundwork so it's not such a foreign concept would certainly go a long way. So Ricardo, I I really want to thank you for taking time today and sharing your wisdom and and your experiences. Ricardo would love to connect with you. So if you do want to connect with Ricardo and have a question specific about mergers or, or acquisitions, you can, we'll put this in the show description, but you can contact him at the following email address, contact at foundation-free.org. But really appreciate your time, Ricardo. Appreciate your wisdom. And uh, until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.